You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Don and I, Niels Castro-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalog and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Jerry Parker, where we discussed the importance of hanging on to your outlier winning trades, uh, the value investing versus trend following, the optimal numbers of entry and exit signals per trade, and how many investors today need to redefine what safe assets really are. So if you missed that episode, I invite you to go back and check it out. And while you're at it, do me a favor and check out the first episode in our new Allocator series, where Alan talks to CIOs of some of the world's largest investment firms. As you may know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you to become the best investor you can become, and we want to be prerogative, but without being polarizing. We want to challenge consensus narratives and to advocate how to think critically about investing in an uncertain world and to provide you with a framework and a mindset that we believe is truly robust. And if you want to help us achieve our goals, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can continue to send us your questions, if you can share these episodes, and not least if you can rate and review them in iTunes and Spotify, we would greatly appreciate it as this really is the best way for us to see that you get some value from our time and dedication each week to create these episodes. And as long as that continues, we will, of course, continue to do them. With all of that said, Alan, great to uh, have you back on the podcast this week. How are you doing? How are things where you are? Great. Uh, good to speak to you again, Niels. Uh, things are very well on my side. Um, had a big week here uh, in the Dunn family. Welcome to a new edition, actually. A uh, baby girl was born, our first child. Uh, so it's been a very exciting, uh, very great week uh, all around. Thank you very much. Absolutely, yeah. Big congratulations on, on the family uh, edition for Thank sure. You. Now, we've got great topics uh, planned for everyone uh, today. But of course, before we do that, let me just quickly sort of recap what's happened in the week so far. The big story, of course, was uh, the U.S. consumer prices that increased at a rate not seen since 1982. January CPI print came in far beyond estimates and showed that prices accelerated 0.6% since December and 7.5% from a year ago, forcing the Fed to act fast. Markets were hoping to see a moderation of inflation momentum, but that clearly didn't happen. And now traders are pricing a 72% probability of a 50 basis point uh, rate hike in March. And just two days ago, that probability was below 30%. Now, treasury yields have reacted across the whole yield curve, putting selling pressure, um, with selling pressure, of course, much more intense in the front end, causing further yield curve flattening. Now, the spread between the two-year and the 10-year treasury yield, last time I looked, uh, which historically is a good predictor of recessions, is reaching um, pretty alarming levels, actually. And this hot US CPI print caused Treasury yields to spike this week, with the two-year skyrocketing to 1.54%. Last time I checked, that's up 18 basis points in the 10-year breaking through the psychological level 
of 2%, and that was up 8 basis points. I also noticed uh, that Goldman Sachs now sees 7 25 basis points hikes in 2022. That's one for every meeting left in the year. Now, what got more expensive? Well, pretty much everything you could say. Uh, The usual suspects were energy, um, goods related to vehicles, of course, and services tied to the pandemic like airfares and events. That accounted for about half the increase in January prices. And the other half, uh, food prices grew at the fastest pace since 1981. Apparels dropped 5.3%. And uh, if anyone recently looked for housing in the US, well, shelter prices also soared, gaining 4.4%. So perhaps it is safe now to say farewell, Zerp, until next time. But over in Japan, they're also feeling the pressure Um, But with with regards to rising yields, but they may not be quite ready to say goodbye to zero interest rate policy. And here the BOJ have been out saying that they are ready to buy an unlimited amount of 10-year Japanese government bonds at a yield of 0.25%, as that will be kind of a pushback to the recent sell-off. Yes, it is extraordinary. Even at 0.25%, Japanese yields are reaching levels not seen since 2015. Um. I can't remember if I mentioned, but we are recording on Friday, so a day early. But uh, So we may not have final numbers for where the week ends. Anyways, Alan, let me get back to you. Um, I know you've been a pretty busy man this week. And um, you shouldn't really have been looking at anything other than your wife and, and your new baby girl. But if you did, what were you looking at? No, you're right. Uh, that was definitely uh, my primary focus. But uh, as uh, as I... Uh, caught up on the market action and the, the market moves. Definitely, as you say, it's been fascinating. Um, this uh, new change, uh, change in tone, really, from the Fed. You know, we got a taste of it from uh, Jerome Powell at the uh, press conference last time, and uh, you know, we're hearing more of it uh, in, from Fed speakers recently. So that the new words are are all about being nimble and humble. Where if you go back in time, we always used to hear about, you know, rates were going to go up um, at a measured pace and the importance of gradualism. So I think we're certainly in the midst of a change uh, in terms of how the Fed is operating and the market is adjusting to that. Uh, and as you say, now people are talking about a possible 50 basis points rise and even some speculation of an emergency rate rise, which is really interesting because, you know, historically, the Fed and central banks have generally had an asymmetric uh, reaction function in the sense that they were always quick to do emergency rate cuts. But uh, you have to probably go back to Paul Volcker in 1979 for an emergency uh, uh, tightening action, I think. Um, So very interesting uh, in terms of uh, central bank policy at the moment. Yeah, it's so interesting also that uh, how narratives can change so quickly. And I did also pick up on that thing about the emergency rate hike, which uh, was an unusual um, expectation to have to say the least. Um, Just a general uh, observation on trend following so far this year before we dive into some of these uh, topics in more details. Um, I mean, I think it's safe to say that um, after a strong start in January, uh, trend followers have kind of continued um, their march higher so far in February as well. Um, Of course, uh, in between managers, you're going to see some divergence, I think, and dispersion returns, probably a lot of it driven by the relative allocation to things like short-term interest rates and to fixed income markets in general. I think that's going to have a lot to say in terms of specific returns. 
And of course, we're also still seeing that exposure to energies um, is quite uh, meaningful in terms of determining uh, how well um, you are doing as a manager. And, um, you know, it's kind of nice, I think, even though um, I don't really want to be sort of um, um, too, uh, how should I say, um, saying, I told you so. I don't think that's really the point here. But it's kind of nice to see that some of the things that we've been talking about, some of the things we warned about on the podcast for the last year is actually playing out um, pretty much uh, as we expected it would. And um, and most importantly, perhaps, it's been quite rewarding, at least for us who have a, a, such a strong passion and love for trend following. It's been, it's been very rewarding to see how well this strategy has navigated this quite major shift in uh, in market sentiment um, and also how relatively well trend following has navigated it vis-a-vis other strategies that tend to hold themselves out as strategies that do particularly well when we have equity sell-offs, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's been interesting. I'm sure we'll get into that um, a little bit more. In terms of my trend barometer, it continues to be pretty strong. It closed yesterday at 59. Of course, as you know, you can see it every day on the on the website. But it confirms this strong performance that we are seeing amongst trend followers so far uh, this year. I think that's all I'm going to do for uh, a market wrap. I want to get to some of our uh, topics instead. Alan, there's quite a few things to dive into. Um, you've sent some things that you've felt was interesting and let's dive into those first i've got a couple that i'm going to try and sneak in from time to time so i'm going to let really our conversation uh, just take us in in all the directions that it may and the first thing you kind of um, alluded to was just really kind of the current markets and the change of tone in central bank and what that means not just for rates etc so i want to let you talk a little bit about that and we'll see how how we go yeah, I mean, you've obviously we've been talking about the Fed and this change in in tone, um, and, you know, and the move away from gradualism, and and you know, obviously, I think that that's definitely something that is interesting, um, you know, and and it relates to what you've been talking about, how well trend following has been doing in this environment, and and how we kind of sense that that might be the case that we could be on the in the midst of a, of a regime shift in markets, and that does seem to be the case with respect to. Um, to uh, monetary policy and you know obviously we're seeing this in the last couple of weeks not just in the US but uh, we had an, an abrupt uh, change from the European Central Bank and uh, uh, and very sharp moves in in short-term interest rate markets and and uh, the short end of the curve in in Europe um even if you look at the chart of you know German two-year yields it looks like a, a significant breakout um so you know Regardless of whether you think, uh, you know, if you think that the ECB will actually have to do an about turn and start to raise rates, what the, what the price action is actually saying at the moment is, you know, we're seeing significant changes in in trends here, um, uh, and and that's you know in, indicative of of a different environment. So I think I think you have to respect that uh, that we're seeing that that shift in in the short term interest rate picture. As I say, you know, I, I think one of the things that um, we've been uh, warning about and thinking about for the last number of years is is a regime shift you know in markets you know the, the 2010s were were characterized by you know uh, ongoing quantitative easing zero interest rates um 
not much fiscal policy, uh, fairly low volatility in, in markets. And now, if you look at this uh, decade so far, we're obviously seeing a very different environment coming through. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're seeing um, much more active fiscal policy. We're seeing a, a, a much stronger economic growth. Uh, and now we're starting to see, uh, you know, we're starting to see an actual interest rate cycle and potentially divergences in interest rates, as as you're alluding to, you know, with the with the Fed on the cusp of a tightening cycle. But, uh, you know, the likes of the Bank of Japan is likely to be much, uh, much later in term uh, in, in their timing of any rate hike. So it's a market environment that is shaping up to be much more like, uh, you know, maybe like the 1990s or the 1980s or but maybe not the 1970s, but certainly an environment where we're seeing, you know, volatility in interest rates, bigger moves in fixed income markets. And this is not something that we've really seen for, for a number of years. So I think it's really interesting for, from, from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, you, there's so much to unpack just in what you said there. I think there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, you just mentioned to, toward the end here, you know, that maybe not like the 1970s. Well, I mean, if we talk about inflation, we might actually see something that's somewhat similar to the 1970s because that's really the last time we had real inflation uh, towards the end of uh, of the 70s. So I think that's one thing. The other thing for me, Alan, that I find really interesting, and it's something that's kind of hard to quantify because it's it's very subtle. And I'm thinking here of the conditioning of people, the conditioning of investors, because of the actions we've had for so long by central banks and by the Fed to basically squash volatility, to squash uncertainty, to uh, make people believe in the buy the dip. For some reason, it never worked for trend following. They never buy the dip, by the way. But anyways, in all other assets, they seem to have conditioned people well to buy the dip. Um, and and th- that is a very important... Um, um, well, it's very meaningful when people are conditioned in that way in terms of how markets are going to react in in various situations. So for me, the more interesting, bigger question, and we won't know the answer to that just yet. And that is, when you talk about regime change, for example, are we starting to see a regime change also when it comes to this um, belief um, in the authorities, the monetary authorities, in their ability to continue to create this cushion? Um, We talk about the Fed put um, quite a while back. Um, I remember talking on the podcast about that I thought the price of the Fed put it was probably lower now, the repricing of that. And I think what's happened in the last um, just few weeks in terms of where their attention have to, to lie now, I think we can pretty much say that the Fed put is most likely going to be a little bit further away than what it used to be because now their concern is not just about asset prices and how to hold them as high as possible, et cetera, et cetera. They've got other things um, to deal with. Um, so, so so that for me, Alan, when I hear you talk, I think those are the things that, um, and, and it also ties into your, when you talk about gradualism and how we may be moving away from that. Because if there's one thing that has helped condition the investors around the world, it's this gradualism and it's this uh, essentially um, telling people well in advance what's going to happen <laughs> and actually being able to deliver on that. Um, we start, we start seeing a little bit of deviation from that in, um, in Q4 2018 with the Powell pivot because that was not what he had flagged or, 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 or steered people towards. 
And now, who knows um, what the hiking cycle is going to look like um, and how much panic we're going to see from from central banks. So, yeah, if we move away from from that as well, that's going to introduce a lot more uncertainty uh, in terms of monetary policy uh, around the world. And I think that can, over time, lead to um, very different behavior uh, from investors. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I think one of the things that's been really interesting and, uh, you know, probably hadn't been foreseen is that, you know, inflation is becoming a political problem as well as a, you know, a problem for central bankers. And, and, and actually now there is a lot of political cover to raise rates, you know, you know historically, uh, the central bankers were fighting for independence to give them the, you know, the leeway to 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 lean into a strong economy with with, with higher rates. But now you've got a situation where politicians, you know, uh, are actively calling for higher rates because nobody wants to, uh, uh, you know, higher cost of living, uh, you know, for, for for voters. So I think that's a, another aspect that that's very unusual in this cycle. Uh, and of course, you know, it, it's it's part of this is reflecting the fact that we've had a policy experiment. You know, we've had the Fed pursuing uh, flexible uh, average inflation targeting and the idea of, you know, waiting till we actually see inflation before you respond, which is not something that the uh, that, that central bankers historically had done. And, you know, in the past, you kind of anticipated where inflation would be two years out and, and you adjusted policy uh, in response to that forecast. Uh, you know, we've had a change in approach uh, and, 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 and obviously the policy reaction has been delayed because of COVID. But, but the upshot of all of that is the starting point now in this tightening cycle is, you know, you know, with, with, with the CPI at seven and a half percent and, and, and rates close to, close to zero, you've got negative interest rates of, of seven and a half percent. So massively stimulative real, real interest rates and, uh, uh, a starting point of inflation, obviously way above target and, 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 and and the economy arguably at full employment. So it's it's a very different scenario than, than, than what we've seen in in really in the last two to three decades. Yeah. Now, last time we spoke, um, we talked about a study uh, or a paper that you had written uh, a couple of years back when trend followers were going through a tough time. And um, there are a lot of good points that we didn't even get to at that. But I want to kind of pick your brain uh, going back in time. Um, and I, I, I wonder whether this is something you uh, recall. I started the discussion last week with Jerry because I was reminded uh, in my preparations for, for my conversation with Jerry that um, a few years back, and I can't remember the exact time, there was a lot of talk in our industry about why trend following wouldn't work so well going forward, especially when interest rates would start to go up. Because, And, and, and the part of the argument was, oh, but trend following has made all its money from being long fixed income markets for 30 years. Uh, and now if that changes, that's going to make it really tough uh, for trend followers. And then they, you know, some people would go on to argue about the role yield and, and, and so on and so forth. We need, don't need to get into that. What's your recollection of that discussion? And, and that leads me to talk to you a little bit about sort of generally what you expect from trend following managed futures in a bond bear market. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. That's it, it, it probably was about 2013, I think, uh, when, when this was really uh, back to the fore, when, you know, we'd had the taper tantrum and, and the market was expecting the, the, the commencement of the, the last Fed tightening cycle, which ultimately started in terms of rate rises in 2015. But certainly um, that was a big theme in markets. I remember speaking to investors a lot and getting that back. And, um, you know, I think what you get is is people can often make, you know, fairly sweeping generalizations and say, well, we've had a big decline in bond yields over a number of decades. And, uh, you know, for sure this, you know, interest rates were low at this point. Obviously, they subsequently went a lot, a lot you know, further uh, into uh, actually into negative territory in Europe. Um, so the sense was, well, rates couldn't go much lower. And that was a big, uh, you know, profitable trade uh, for trend followers. So, you know, the game was up for, for trend following was, was the argument. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, what the points that, that, that we made in, in response to that, uh, you know, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing playing out in the, in the market action this year, really, um, in the sense that, you know, obviously, Trend following and managed strategies are bi-directional. So that's the first point. They can be long or short uh, in, in all of these markets. And what matters first and foremost is, you know, the strength and persistence of trends. And we've seen a fairly persistent uh, uh, uptrend in yields now from, I think, uh, yields bottomed around uh, August 2020. So, you know, we've been in a rising yield environment on and off now for, uh, for going on a couple of years um, the, the strength of the trend is obviously will wane and, you know, over time, but but we're seeing, an, you know, a, a resumption of, of that uh, downtrend in bonds this year. So that's the first thing that there is that opportunity for trend following and managed futures to, to, to make money from, from, from the short position in bonds. Yes, you know, uh, it, when you have high yields and, and a positively sloped yield curve, you do have a positive carry as a tailwind as well in terms of the trend. And they're, they're great trends, obviously great profitable trades to have when you get a strong trend and you're getting the kicker of carry. Um, but you won't always get that. And uh, I remember writing, you know, about this back in 2013 and we made the point in, in, in a paper, you know, you, you know, you could make money in something like uh, dollar Brazilian real with the, with the carry very much against you uh, if, the, if, the, if you get it enough in terms of price movement uh, on 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 the uh, the capital side. So uh, first and foremost, it's always the strength of, of the trend. The the other big point is though, you know, what what does the environment look like when you've got a period of rising rates and you've got a bond bear market? Well, it's going to be an environment like we're seeing at the moment, where um, possibly an inflationary environment. That's what we're seeing, and we're seeing what comes with that is trends in commodity markets. So obviously. We've had a strong uptrend in, in oil, uh, in some of the softs, uh, in energy markets over the last number of months. Uh, base metals uh, going, they've been broadly sideways for the last couple of months. But prior to that, um, and obviously, as you say, we're seeing big moves in short-term interest rates. So that's a source of opportunity. Seeing moves in currencies to an extent, uh, probably not as strong as maybe as in the short-term rates markets. But it's the fact that, um, yeah, that that a period of rising rates is 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 often going to be associated with not just that opportunity in bonds, but also opportunities across other markets. And you know, you tend to get trends when you get surprises. And what we're in the midst at the moment is is a repricing across all markets. As I said, we're we're seeing a big repricing across uh, European rates markets in the last few weeks as uh, 
the market has adjusted to a different perception of, of the European Central Bank. We've seen, you know, markets reprice in the US in terms of short-term interest rates as well. Um, so so it, it, these are the things that drive the performance of trend-following, uh, repricing events, uh, trends, dislocations. Um, and I think one of the things that, that I've noticed uh, with speaking to investors as well is very often that, that there is this temptation to say, oh, well, you know, I don't think there's going to be trends in equities and the market's going to be in a range. So I don't, I'm not going to allocate trend following or, you know, same way bonds look like they're rangy. You know, I don't, I don't think it's going to work. And then, you know, touching on what you've been talking to people like Jerry about, it's like these outlier trades that can really drive the performance of trend following. So it could be that you get, you know, yes, maybe bonds do trade in a range, but you get big trends in, in, in softs or grains or in currencies. And that will be the thing that drives um, drives overall performance. And, and actually, you know, when you look at it, uh, you know, if you go back to the decade between 2000 and 2010, it wasn't really bonds that, that drove a lot of the performance of trend following in that period. It, it was actually uh, commodities where, where you had the big trends. Um, for sure, I would say the last decade it w- was, was pretty good for, for bonds, but it was very tough for com- commodities and currencies. And now we're seeing commodities starting to do well. So this is an, you know, another part of the philosophy of trend following. You don't know where the trends are going to be in any given month or year that they will surprise you. And you can't second guess it too much and say, well, I'm not going to allocate trend following because I can't pick out which markets are going to trend. The trends will, will, will come often by surprise. And, and the, the whole philosophy is about allocating to all of these different markets and then capturing the opportunities when they arise. I mean, when you sit there and you speak about these things and when you mention this fact that uh, investors would often have very strong opinions about why they wouldn't want to allocate because they know exactly where this sector or that market is going to go or, or frankly where it's not going to go and therefore they kind of predict that this means trend following won't work. I have come across that a lot of times and and you kind of probably think, well, maybe it's a good idea for them not to allocate because they clearly don't understand what trend following is all about. If you think you can predict anything uh, in terms of where our future performance is going to come from. You mentioned one other thing um, and... Um, you know, we mentioned the word carry, right? And I think maybe we need to talk about that a little bit because it seems to me that in the last sort of 15 years, maybe um, plus minus, the whole world has gone into this carry world, right? Not only do we know that some managers have introduced carry trades in their trading, that's one thing, but there are so many strategies that rely on carry. When I think of carry, it's kind of this, um, you know, there's a little bit of a, an analogy to kind of insurance. I mean, you get kind of a stable return stream as long as everything stays relatively calm. But then when it doesn't, you lose your shirt. And um, and so it's very much this sort of a convergent uh, investment philosophy that 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 carry represents. And and of course, I think that central banks have encouraged this. I mean, and this is why it's been so. I mean, it's been very profitable uh, during uh, certain periods of time, without a doubt. But again, it goes back to this conditioning that we've been conditioned that we're going to see relatively stable returns from strategies that might be inherently much more risky. Um, we just haven't seen the risk yet. And maybe that's coming up. Now, just just for a little bit of a, a sort of a, an example of what I mean by risk we haven't really seen. If I had said to anyone, I believe... Uh, a month ago, that one of the world's largest companies could lose 25% of its value overnight 
$250 billion. I think people would have thought me as being crazy. Um, but now it's happened. It probably, and, and there were more than just one company. It wasn't just Facebook that lost massive value as far as I recall. I think PayPal was another one. And um, I was listening to Mohammed El Arian um, talk uh, recently. And he was saying that during that period of time, there were also massive issues with trading things like Microsoft. And I'm thinking, oh my God. I mean, here we have some of the, the most liquid stocks in the world. You can't trade them. One of them have a gap risk of 25%. What does that do to your portfolio valuation and, and all your models, uh, et cetera, et cetera? And once you start having that, in a world where there's been, there's probably more concentration of risk right now than ever before. And what I mean by that is we have large concentrations into passive investing. And within passive investing, some of these large, uh, the FANG stocks to be uh, direct, they have a massive weight inside the indices, not just NASDAQ anymore, but even in the, five, in the S&P 500, it's like 17, 18% of the index is just tied to those few stocks. So the amount of concentration on all levels in the financial system is bigger than I think it's ever been. And then we see events like this. And um, of course, it only takes these flows to go from, you know, I mean, I think we had more inflows in, in, in passive and, and ETFs, and, and, and maybe I'm confusing it a little bit in terms of what it was. But I think there were more inflows last year in these products than combined in the last 10 years. And I'm just worried that some of what we're seeing now, some of the cracks that's happening, some of the expectations that's changing might lead people to say, well, hang on, maybe we're not going to keep just putting money into this. Maybe we need to think about something else. And then you lose that natural, you know, same with, uh, you know, uh, buybacks. I mean, once these buybacks stop, you lose another um, sort of um, natural buyer. Uh, I don't know how natural it is, but a buyer that's been there, let's, a consistent buyer, let's call him that, in the markets as well. And it doesn't take long from going from one state of the market to a completely different state. It's a little bit like, and I hate to use this analogy, but it's a good one. It's a little bit of what, what happened in Afghanistan last year where essentially what, what took place in a, just a matter of days, a complete, you know, fall of, 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 of what was, you know, the state we had uh, when, when, when the U.S. was present there and to what happened when the Taliban came back. It happened so quickly. And, um, and, and I worry whether that is something we could see happening in financial markets as well. Absolutely. Um... The, the thing about these things is uh, uh, there's an expression, I, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's uh, these old things take longer to happen than you expect, but then they happen, you know, more aggressively more than you than, expect as yeah. well. And uh, th yeah. that's that's really the typical scenario with a carry trade. Um, I'll always remember, you know, I started off in, in markets and currencies and uh, this is the mid 90s. The, the big carry trade was long dollar yen. And, you know, it, it you know, it's, well, the yen had strengthened down to about um, eighty against the dollar in 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 the in the early to mid nineties, and then there was an intervention, and then the dynamic changed, and it was somewhat similar to the current scenario where rates in the US were going up, and rates in Japan were were you know definitely anchored 
um, and and people were using the yen as a funding currency and the US favored a strong dollar. So dollar yen went up and up and up and up. And um, this was through 90, you know, 6, 97 and into 98, uh, the market turned down. And I, I, you know, I remember when the dollar yen carry trade unwound, it was literally dropping big figures in a matter of minutes. And, uh, you know, there's a, a big pain for a lot of hedge funds at the time. But that's the quintessential, you know, carry trade that everybody, you know, goes up slowly. And then but when it unwinds, it, it unwinds very aggressively. And, you know, obviously, we when you have a carry trade like that, you know, and arguably what we saw in the treasury market in 2020, March 2020, hedge funds had a lot of um, basis trades on, um, you know, between cash and the futures. And then amidst trying to unwind that, the, the treasury market froze. And, you know, a similar, similar type of scenario back with LTCM in 98, it was, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, off the run versus on the road type, type um, um, carry trades. So, so you're right. Um, it's when you get certain conditions in markets, you know, a lot of liquidity, commitments to keeping rates low and there, there appears to be a lot of certainty and it's 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 like the um it's like the minsky moment you know that that conditions are encourage people to take on more and more risk but you reach tipping point uh, and then obviously when things start to unravel everybody's heading for the exit at the same time so so i think you're right that this is definitely a you know a risk to be on the agenda this year and i think the other area where it's not really understood what what the impact is, is the Fed's balance sheet and all of these central bank balance sheets. Um, everybody's talking about, you know, will the Fed do 50 or 25 or 1% this year or 2%? But, you know, it's the, it was the balance sheet expansion that put all of the liquidity into the financial markets. And now we're hearing that the Fed will be taking that liquidity back out. We're going to have quantitative tightening this year. We don't know how much or what this, what the pace of that will be. But, um, you know, if you go back to the 2018 period, the market was able to stand, withstand, you know, gradually rising rates. But it was when you had rising rates and that balance sheet contraction that the money was, liquidity was coming out of market. So I think that's when it's going to get very interesting uh, as we go through the year. And, um, you know, because the whole point of quantitative easing is to inject money into markets to compress risk premia to encourage people to take on more risk effectively, you know, and, and that creates a wealth effect and it encourages investment, et cetera. So if you take, put all of that into reverse, you know, you're going to see higher yields. That would be the expectation. And you're going to see liquidity coming out of the markets, which is going to be, you know, a headwind for, 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 for the riskiest elements of the market. So, you know, that could be, that could be the, the you know, the, the, the tipping point later in this year, but certainly something to monitor. Yeah. And, and the other thing, of course, there's no guarantee that it'll always play out the same way. But it's interesting that we've now seen with certain equities where just liquidity dried up and you saw massive uh, drops in, 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 in price uh, in, in no time. Well, we saw it in uh, 2020, uh, for sure. We know that the market froze, even the U.S. Treasury uh, market froze. Uh, it was the corporate bonds in Q4 uh, 2018 that froze when, uh, as you rightly said, they started to uh, tighten. Um, and and so on and so forth. But what has been consistent, though, at least through those periods, is that futures markets have remained liquid. And I think that's really interesting. I think that's really important. And I think it's something that is often underappreciated by uh, people when they look at various strategies. The value, and unfortunately, we often end up paying for it because that's where we get 
that's when we get redemptions from investors who say, oh, I've lost so much money over here, so I got to take out some money from my trend followers who can give me the daily or the weekly or the monthly liquidity. Um, that's that's unfortunate, I think, but uh, that's how it normally happens. But I do think it's important to um, to to note that, and and we'll see, uh, and hopefully this will remain the same uh, this time around. That there's always going to be ample liquidity for uh, for us to do uh, our business in the markets that we trade. Now we talked about that trend following and so on and so forth. Managed futures can can do well in in um, bond market uh, or bond bear markets. and um, But the other thing I just want to say, by the way, um, not not to continue to quote Mohammed Alarian uh, uh, the whole episode, but he did mention one other thing that I thought was quite funny. Because, we, of course, another thing that that this shift in, 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 in sentiment, um, it's also when people start to realize what silly valuations they've been paying for stuff, right? When you realize that it's really not worth that in terms of PE or whatever it might be. And he came with this story. He told this story. It's obviously a, a joke, but but he told about this this um, guy who comes back to his family uh, with his, with a new dog. And, and, and he shows the dog to the family and they say, oh, fantastic. How much did you pay for the dog? And the guy says, oh, I paid $40,000. And of course, everybody's completely flabbergasted and they say, what the f- did you do? You didn't pay $40,000 for a dog. And he said, Oh yeah, I did. It was a great. It was a great value. The cat was fifty thousand. <laughs> so you know, it's that moment when we realize that maybe we shouldn't have paid uh, all this. Um, you know, all these high valuations for things that may not be worth it anyway. So, no more jokes for today. I hope, but I do want to talk about what are we going to do about it. So we, of course, in one of the conversations we haven't released that yet. So we're going to do that soon. But in one of your new series uh, conversations. We kind of touched upon the 60-40 and, 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 and um, what are people going to do with the 60-40 in a situation like this, where, of course, we saw on full display in January and early February that bonds and stocks can go down at the same time. People just maybe forgotten that, but that's actually what, what they normally do. Um, and, of course, one of the... Uh, I won't reveal who said it because the people should listen to the conversation then they'll know what we're talking about. But of course, one of the large allocators that you interviewed uh, said, well, who invests in the 60-40 portfolio anyways? I mean, I think a lot of people still do, in, in, in maybe without sort of doing it expressly and certainly maybe in certain institutional investors, they have moved, moved on from there and probably more multi-asset uh, portfolios and so on and so forth. But I mean, Rich and I have been writing about it on 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 the blog, and and we publish this um, update every month where we say, well, could we potentially create a forty consisting of five different trend following strategies, uh, selected completely rules based and kept for a year, and how would that have fared against a, a classical sixty forty uh, portfolio in the last twenty years? Where of course we know the forty, uh, the fixed income forty had done really well. We know that from, from lower rates. Um, and, and yet we still found a way that we can compete pretty well. But what are your, what are your thoughts um, in, when we talk about sort of the 60-40 and, and maybe also thinking back on some of the conversations you've had over the years where maybe you were trying to convince people as well to review the 60-40 uh, at least? Yeah, I, I mean, I think everybody's very much on the same sheet on this. I mean, you'd that, that, that the outlook for the 60-40 is more challenging looking ahead. Obviously, 
particularly in the US, yeah, equity valuations look uh, look stretched by some measures, like the the Shiller Cape in particular, and then obviously bond yields are low. Obviously, yields have risen a bit now, so it's not as arguably as bad as maybe um, twelve months ago. But but still, with it, you know, two percent um, ten year yield, you know, th- th- that's um, that's a good approximation for what you will get on an annualized basis if you own if you buy that bond and hold it for ten years. So that's not that attractive, um, and obviously, um, equity yields better, have better than zero in Europe. Better than Alan. zero, remember no, that yeah. for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> um, and and our equity yields have have declined as as PEs have gone up. So so it it's it's it seems fairly compelling that that the sixty forty, you know, won't perform as well as it has in the last decade. Uh, looking forward to the next decade. And, um, you know, I think you have a challenge there is, is people are looking for, for alternatives, both on the equity side and on the bond side, probably more, you know, notwithstanding the fact that equities are possibly, you know, richly valued, it's probably more on the fixed income side that people have been more focused in terms of um, looking at alternatives. And I, you know, my own view is, I think definitely managed futures trend following is part of the solution. If you think about bonds, you know, what's the role of bonds in a portfolio? For some people, it's income. And then for some people, it is that diversifying value and having something that can do well when equities struggle. So, you know, um, safe government bonds filled those two roles historically. You know, um, there was a time you could get a decent income out of government bonds if you went back to, you know, 2000 or so. You, you would probably have been yielding treasury, 10-year treasuries were probably about 5 or 6%. So, you know, at one stage, you could get income and uh, a sense of of, of uh, protection from from bonds. Obviously, as yields have come down, the the, the uh, income side of thing things is is diminished. But I think that because of that, the natural tendency is for people to look at other fixed income products in the first instance. So, okay, I'm not going to hold treasury, so I might hold corporate bonds or maybe high yield or maybe emerging market debt, and that's. That's fine, but in terms of possibly generating some income from the portfolio, but in one of the conversations that that, that I was having in the allocator series, uh, it, you know, we talked about this myth of diversification. That that actually you might think you have some diversifying um, um, assets in your portfolio, but they they what what often happens with things like corporate bonds and emerging market debt is they might have maybe. Uh, you know, a 0.3 or 0.4 correlation uh, to equities when equities are going up, but then will become more correlated when when equities are going down, uh, which is not really helpful. And the second thing is their volatility may often increase as the market sells off. And, and obviously, you know, we saw this in in the in March 2020, but we're seeing it again this time uh, because obviously, um, you know, we're in we're in a rising yield environment. So. Yes, those types of assets uh, can can possibly give you income in your portfolio, but you could be adding to your equity beta by by adding uh, something like uh, like credit or, or emerging market debt. So I think that's where uh, managed futures and trend following is very interesting in that it gives you that diversification to equities, um, but you're not necessarily adding to your, your equity beta. And obviously, as we know, Trend following in futures has done very well in in, in very significant uh, equity bear markets, uh, like we saw in two thousand and two thousand and eight. Um, is it? W- will you convince people that 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 trend following is a bond substitute? I'm not sure about that. Um, you know, uh, just pr- being being practical about it. You know, bonds 
have certain characteristics. If you if you invest in a bond, you know exactly what you'll get back eventually. You know, subject to to the credit risk. But I think I think definitely managed and trend following has that attribute, that characteristic that that is interesting that can play that uh, diversifying uh, characteristic that, that that bonds had played for people before. So I think it can play some of the role, um, and and uh, you know maybe it's it's the fact that uh, that you combine uh, trend following with with some other alternatives. Um, to, 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 to get a more diversified um, uh, alternative um, uh, uh, kind of allocation. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, what we're seeing at the moment is definitely evidence of, of the benefit of it. It's just that I think it's, it's the mindset that's often very hard to change uh, around these things. Yeah, no, it will take a, I mean, I've been at it for more than 30 years and it still hasn't really changed. So, um, but we'll continue to fight the good fight, of course. But, but may, maybe... Maybe it just coincides with the fact that the last 30 years plus have actually been this period where, yeah, you couldn't go wrong with with a bond uh, or or a portfolio of bonds um, because you would be certain to get some return, which also begs the question why some people were still happy to lock in actual losses when they were buying, you know, 10-year European bonds or 30-year European bonds at negative interest rates. I mean, you, you kind of think, what on earth makes people do that? Because they know what the result is. You're going to lose money. And the other thing that's interesting about the situation right now, which I guess is somewhat different, you mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation that with inflation, we can think back of the 70s um, to some extent. But the, the other interesting part of that is that when we last time had inflation, we didn't have nearly as much debt as we have now. And we didn't have nearly as much uh, leverage in the system as we have now. And and I think th- th- this will make a meaningful difference to how it all plays out. And I don't think we can be certain uh, at all that some of these things that we look at as being safe will remain safe, even if it has the name government in its name. Um, and of course, this is very, it's unthinkable for most people right now to even suggest that you could have sovereigns um, default on debt. Um but I, I just don't think we should be too um, uh, afraid of thinking way outside the box because we have gone through such a long period of time where uh, policies have been way outside uh, what we could have imagined anyways. And on top of that, we've just been through a, a, a pandemic that's also stirred up um, quite a few things uh, in the financial system uh, and not least among um, you know ordinary um, investors and and, and, and all of that stuff. One of the things I thought we might touch on, I don't know if you, um, uh, if you want to do that, I mean, we could touch on a little bit the conversation you had that we released on Wednesday. Uh, that was with Phil Huber. Maybe you can just summarize a little bit about who Phil is and why he's interesting and, and also some of the work that he's recently uh, published. I'm sure you won't mind that. And uh, what maybe some of your takeaways from, from that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, great to have Phil on the uh, podcast Um um, Phil is a CIO at Vant Wealth Management, and he is the author of a, a recently published book, The Allocator's Edge, which focuses on 
really the topic that we're talking about today, you know, that the outlook for the 6040 looks uh, challenging. So with that in mind, which which alternative investments uh, should investors be considering and how how to think about the different types of alternatives? Um, so, you know, his book is very much a deep dive into all of the different types of um, uh, alternatives, you know, going from private equity hedge funds to, you know, alternative risk premia to, you know, things like insurance uh, um, linked link strategies, catastrophe bonds, um, right, right, right all the way to, to the other end of the risk spectrum and, um, you know, cryptocurrencies and uh, and digital tokens, etc. So it's 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 an interesting uh, read. I, I've I've been reading it in the last while. It it has lots of really good um, good material in there for for anybody who's interested in in alternative investments. And um, great to get his perspective on you know how he approaches uh, asset allocation and portfolio construction. And you know a lot of the questions that you often get speaking to investors you know is you know okay where do if i'm going to allocate to 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 alternatives do i fund it out of the equity side or the bond side you know uh, how much do i allocate you know you know what are the challenges around manager selection um and then how do you stay the course and these are all kind of topics that we picked up with phil um you know one of the interesting things that when you read his book you go through it and he goes through the technicalities of all of these alternative investments and he gets to the final chapter and it's all about you know Having the courage of staying, uh, staying the course, and having the conviction uh, to 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 stay invested in these strategies, because you don't know uh, what the world's going to look like, um, at, uh, yeah, and things can change, and and these kind of risk premia will will have periods where they they won't necessarily be evident or present in markets, and then they'll make a comeback, as we've seen with with with, with value versus growth, and as we're seeing now with trend following, which had a tough period for for a number of years, and. Um, so I, I think it, it, it's it's an interesting point that um, you know we, we in in our conversation we talked about this having a behavioural edge as an allocator and as an investor. You know, if you think about the different types of edges you might have, you know, you might have an information edge or uh, an analytical edge, and a lot of these are being eroded with technology. But it's the behavioural aspect that is very challenging. Saying okay, this is an asset allocation strategy that will work over the long term. Um, that's that's it's one thing saying that it's another challenge sticking to that when you get faced with periods of you know challenging performance. So definitely encourage people to listen in to that uh, to 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 hear uh, Phil's perspective. Um, but I think you know Phil and and his firm are obviously at the more you know progressive end in terms of embracing alternatives and and, and allocating to strategies like managed futures and trend following. But it's great to see um, that that uh, that approach uh, from from a sophisticated financial advisor. Yeah, no, indeed, uh, we certainly want more people uh, like that in this uh, in those type of roles um, that would make a meaningful difference. I'm sure to many people's portfolios, uh, of course. I again, I love the fact that you. I wouldn't say I love it, but actually, I pick up on the fact that you you mentioned this thing. You know, after trend following has had a a tough time uh, recently. And I was I was discussing that with Jared last week because I thought it's funny we still talk about it that way because it's been quite a few years now since CTAs had had a tough time. We've just had three very solid, respectable years uh, from the indices, and and we're into a, a fourth, um, pretty good start. So we I'm trying to remind people not to uh, mm. use that narrative anymore because otherwise we never gonna get out and 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 change people's minds that actually it's been pretty good. 
No, you're right. It, it's um, it's a label that kind of stuck um, back, you know, 2018, yeah. 2019. But but you're absolutely right. It's been the fourth year of pretty good performance now. Um, so so certainly it it has uh, the picture has changed substantially. Yeah, definitely. One of the things I also want to mention today is that you wrote a nice piece on just uh, what's happening in terms of of the Fed and 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 all of that stuff. Um, I will link to that in the show notes. But one thing in that piece, by the way, that just stood out to me was a chart or table you show um, where you talk about historical tightening cycles since 1990 and where the various sort of economic data stats um, were at the time of starting. And um, and and one of them uh, you show is the starting real Fed funds. So what's the real Fed funds um, at the starting point? And it's been sort of like half a percent, minus one percent, three percent. But then this time around, it's like minus 4.7%, completely outlier, which makes it um, pretty interesting indeed. If we were going to sort of round off uh, a little bit, um, and so I'm just going to sort of give your, maybe you can add something to it, maybe you can talk a little bit about it as well. But if we're looking for arguments for why we may be entering an interesting season for trend following, even though I've just argued that it has actually been pretty interesting for a few years now. But let's just say that these events that's taking place right now will make it even more interesting uh, than before. We can talk about inflation as a reason. We can talk about the changes in central bank policies. We can talk about, as I alluded to, silly valuations like the dot-com bubble. If that's going to burst, maybe that opens some opportunities for us. Interest rates coming back at a higher level is generally speaking, of course, not a bad thing. It, it does show up in performance, uh, at least in the funds where people will receive interest income uh, for the money that CTAs are not using for, for trading purposes. Over here in Europe, where you and I are, um, Alan, we have the constant um, screen time about geopolitical issues, uh, obviously right now concentrated around Ukraine. Um, who says it's going to end with that? Um, we have China as well. Let's not forget about that. What happens after the Olympics uh, are over. Uh, we have energy policies, right? Um, what, uh, you know, we, we, we energy has been a, a big driver of performance. It could be a massive driver of performance if, if some of this continues and we realize that the way energy policies have been um, planned uh, is completely wrong. And um, we can't move as fast as we want to in terms of green energy. And then finally, one outlier, I would say, um, I think I can't remember if I mentioned it already on the podcast, but I picked this up on another podcast where um, the people were much smarter than I and read stuff that I don't read. Um, but essentially NASA and one other uh, big institution, I think in the US, had come out and said, well, actually, we think climate change is linked to sunspots activity. And that cycle uh, is about to change in a couple of years. And we should actually expect the globe to be, the, the climate to become much cooler than what it is right now. Um, and if it and if they're right, I'm just I'm not saying they are right, I'm just saying if they're right, that could have massive effect on food prices because you can't grow the same amount of food or crops in a cool climate than you can in a warm climate. And I don't think many people um, is thinking about that right now. So these are just things or themes that that I can think of would make it an interesting period to uh, to make sure you have enough trend following in your portfolio. 
what are your thoughts or what have i missed um yeah i, I think i think you're absolutely right all of all of those are are interesting uh, points and you know at a high level you know we talked about this last time we spoke in relation to the paper i'd written you know trend following will do well generally when you get bigger moves in markets and and uh, okay maybe not vo directional volatility is what you want really uh, when do you get that and i think broadly speaking you know maybe there's two 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 sets of circumstances one is macro volatility because if you have volatility in macro variables that's going to influence things like you know obviously bonds interest rates currencies equities etc uh, and then secondly idiosyncratic events are are those things that we can't anticipate whether it's uh, pandemics or wars or droughts or ge geopolitical conflicts uh, and what happens is you get a, a surprise event and you have the first order impact but then you have the second order impact and possibly the third order impact etc so that's how you get you get trends in markets. You don't know, what, you know, obviously, by definition, we don't know what what idiosyncratic events are going to come up over the next while, and there could be more or it could be less of them. Um, you know, uh, people who look at the geopolitical world will always say, "Oh, it's particularly interesting now," or "It's less so," or whatever. And obviously, things are are, are hotting up between Russia and Ukraine, etc. So that's an obvious point, and China and Taiwan is always there in the background, and you can point to a, numbers and a, a number of things like that. Certainly on the macro volatility side of things, as we've been talking about, you can definitely point to, you know, we're into a more interesting period from that perspective. And, you know, you touched on the paper I wrote. Um, and really, the, the, but one of the points I was making in this paper is that it's, it's a really difficult job for central banks and for the Fed to try and move policy to where it should be. For one, they don't know where it should be. So that's the first problem. You know, <laughs> ideally, you know, if you listen to Jerome Paul, he says he wants to, policy to go from very accommodative to less accommodative to neutral. But where is neutral? You know, back in the 2018 tightening cycle, we had this constant talk about, you know, wh where is our star? That's what the economists refer to the neutral rate of interest, our star. But nobody knows exactly where that is uh, because... The Fed, you know, influences the economy via overall financial conditions. So they're trying to tinker with an interest rate to influence a whole set of variables like bond yields, credit spreads, equity prices. Um, so it would have a big, you know, different impact on the economy. If rates are at 2%, but financial conditions haven't moved, that's not really going to have much impact on the economy. Or if they get rates 2%, but financial conditions adjust, that will have a different impact on the economy. So... It's trying to engineer a soft landing and bring down inflation and nudge policy to a, an area that's neutral when they don't even know what neutral is. They have a sense. I mean, based on their um, you know, summary of economic projections, they think neutral policy is about um, 2 to 3% in nominal terms and, and about uh, 50 basis points for, for real yields. But, but, you know, what's a neutral policy stance for the size of the balance sheet, you know, and there's a lot of debate amongst economists, like does quantitative easing operate via the stock or the flow? So is it the ongoing purchases of the bonds or is it the fact that the balance sheet has increased? Which, which of those two factors is providing the stimulus? So if you don't even know which is providing the stimulus, it's hard to know, you know, how much to withdraw uh, and how much of an impact that will have. So this the fact that you you, you know it's 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 a nearly an impossible task to to get to that perfect neutral point means they're, they're they've they've 
to now undershot and they probably will overshoot in, in, in terms of tightening. And that's what, you know, facilitates volatility in markets. And, um, you know, that's why often, you, you know, if you look at a scenario, scenario like 2008, you know, it started off with oil prices going up to $147. And then by the end of the year, they were back down towards 20 or $30. So you could definitely envisage that type of scenario where at the start of this year, you know, markets could be heading in one direction. And by the end of the year, they could be heading in completely the other direction because because of that difficulty in, in managing policy. So I think, obviously, we, 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 we're, we're probably a bit biased on this podcast, for sure, in terms of, you know, you know the, the benefits of, of these types of strategies. But certainly in this environment, that's the benefit of a systematic uh, strategy of, of responding to market moves that, you know, re- the strategy will do well if you have big moves in markets and you have a plan for, for responding to those moves. Um, and, you know, I think as uh, talking about the two categories, the macro volatility and idiosyncratic events, you could certainly make a strong case for why this can, you know, could be a very interesting year um, uh, for, for, from, from, from both perspectives. Yeah, I mean, you say that we are biased, but you could also turn around and say, no, we're just stating the fact, right? I mean, there's never been a white paper suggesting that adding trend following to a portfolio of stocks and bonds uh, doesn't have a beneficial uh, effect on it. So, yes, we speak of it in biased terms, but I also think, and I think that is important, that we really try and hold true to what the evidence suggests. I don't think we would sit here for eight years trying to uh, convince people of something if it if it if it hadn't any basis in the fact That's right, right yeah. so 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 uh, uh you know anyways um interesting stuff i mean you say it's a hard job to uh, pinpoint where the fed funds rate could be i mean radical thought we could just pin it to the two year two year note and then let the market decide what's a good rate for uh, for fed funds and yeah. um, maybe that might work better Absolutely, yeah. Then uh, 12 people or however many they are uh, trying to uh, guess and uh, and so on and so forth. Okay, cool. I think that was a pretty um, interesting conversation, certainly from my point of view. I appreciate that, Alan. In terms of uh, performance, as I said before, the num- some of the numbers here are actually from Wednesday night because uh, I was just updating my screen in front of me, but unfortunately we don't have the returns uh, as of yesterday. But yesterday was a good day for, for trend followers, I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, and CTAs in general. So, but anyway, the Beta 50 index is as of Thursday night, and that's up 1.33 for the month and up 3% for the year. The SOCGEN CTA index up 1.78 as a Wednesday, up almost 4 for the year. SOCGEN trend up 2.68 as a Wednesday, up 6% already uh, for the year. And the short term traders index up 0.42, up 1.71% year to date as a Wednesday. Um, the trend barometer I already mentioned, it closed at 59 Thursday night, so that's pretty strong. And of course, um, equities can still move around, but at the moment, uh, or at least uh, uh, end of yesterday, MSCI World Index was still up shy of 1% uh, for the month and still down 4.5% for the year. And the uh, World Government Bond Index is down uh, a whopping in that world, a 1.87% for February already. Um, so uh, not having a great time, um, as you would expect. Anyways, I think on that note, we're going to wrap up uh, this week's conversation so that Alan can get back to his um, new baby girl. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please head over to iTunes, Spotify, leave a rating and review so more people can find the podcast. Next week, I'm joined by Mark, so make sure you send us your questions uh, well ahead of time. 
As always, you can email them to info at toptradersonplug.com and we do our best to bring them up uh, when we next record. From Alan and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.